This is episode 19 with Fad Al Hatab. Fad is a social entrepreneur turned keynote speaker who has spoken to and trained over 50,000 youth on leadership and social innovation. Welcome to 8 Billion Gifts. This is your host, Sohil, a footballer, creative, and student. On this show, we talk to all kinds of people to discover their stories, their mindset, and their unique gift. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. We're here with Fad Al Hatab. Fad is a social entrepreneur turned keynote speaker who has spoken to and trained over 50,000 youth across the country on leadership, entrepreneurship, and social innovation. He has founded a camp for underprivileged children and has raised more than $1.2 million for local charities. His mission is to share these lessons with the next generation of resilient leaders. As a leadership speaker, Fod motivates students with humor, storytelling, and takeaways designed to inspire them to become change makers in their schools, organizations, and communities. His passion is helping students find the leaders in themselves. Fod, what's going on, man? How you doing? Thanks for having me, man. I'm doing good. It's great having you here. So I got to know about you at the Legacy Conference, which happened just about a month ago now, and you did a fantastic job hosting the entire event. The energy was there the entire time. And the highlight for me was uh, the appearance that Seth Godin made, which I'm sure for you was amazing too, because you mentioned, you know, reading all his books throughout the years. What was that like for you being able to talk to him? I was, I was fanboying the whole time. I was like, this is real. Like this is happening. You know, like this, you know, this is the man I've been reading his books, listening to his podcast, watching his videos, learning from his, his ideas, following his blog. And, uh, um, you know, it was, it was obviously virtual, but yet, you know, I was able to interact with him. I remember I was like, he said my name, you know, like, <laughs> uh, but it was cool. And I, and I think the best part of it was that it, he felt real. He felt authentic. It didn't feel like he was putting on a show for us. He came out, he gave us a message, he answered some amazing questions and and he's consistent like his message over the years whether it was in his books and all that so it was really it was really fun to see that really really inspiring to see that and uh, uh yeah i mean I, I i couldn't have asked for a better experience personally unless it was in person you know which obviously would have been a little more fun that's great to hear i know a lot of his work ties into leadership as well which is something that you're a lot into and I want to I wanna start with, with an important question before we really dive into leadership. Let's get listeners engaged. Is everyone a leader and why? Um, no, not everyone is a leader. Uh, you're not automatically a leader. And, uh, you know, can I think, you know, the, the question perhaps is, can everyone be a leader? The answer to that is yes. But is everyone a leader? No. You know, there's a great... Um, it's a great story that's shared uh, by uh, a researcher who was researching creativity. And um, he was researching creativity and he wanted to understand where creativity falls apart and wh- wh- when do we stop being creative? When do we stop thinking of ourselves as artists? And so he goes uh, and he used to work for Hallmark. And so he goes for he goes to the kindergarten class because you know, he knows he'll find the most artists there. He goes to a kindergarten class and he asks the kindergarten class, how many of you are artists? And uh, there's about 80% of the room, 90% of the room put their hand up, right? If you're in kindergarten, you're like, me, 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 I'm an artist, yeah. right? Like I have nieces and nephews that age. You know, their art, their art is hideous, but yet they all think, they all think they're artists, right? 
Um, and he follows that same group of kids. They go to grade three and uh, he asks them, how many of you are artists? And uh, uh, about half the room puts their hand up, you know, and kind of a little more reluctantly this time. And then in grade six, he follows them again and, and he asks the same group of students, how many of you are artists? And at this point, um, about only 10 to 15% of the room put their hand up. And what's interesting is that he found that over age, less and less of them felt themselves to be an artist. Um, he asked the same question to adults, how many of artists? And we get about the same response, 10 to 15%. But he never asked, how many of you are good artists? He never asked, how many of you have work that you sell? He asked, how many of you are artists? See, the difference between someone who's an artist and someone who's not is someone who creates. You're an artist because you create. Every kid creates. And, you know, something must have happened between kindergarten and grade six. You either got worse at art or someone told you you weren't good enough. And it's probably the latter. And the same thing happens with leadership is that we're told we have to be good leaders. We have to be people who know what we're doing. We have to be experts to be leaders. We have to be in positions of leadership. We have to know what we're doing in order to lead. But that's not the case. Leadership doesn't mean you know what you're doing. Leadership means that you step up and try. And that's when anybody can be a leader is because you're taking initiative and you are trying to create something that didn't exist before you. You're trying to create an impact. But then the question is everybody a leader? No. I think the majority of us are consumers. We sit on the passenger side of the car of life. We sit there and car moves, and we go along with it. We consume social media, we consume what we see on Netflix, we consume, we consume, we consume, and then we complain. But we have a contrarian style that we enjoy in our generation, which is we point and, and, and we are so good at criticizing and putting so much energy at deconstructing why things work. That perhaps I think I've dedicated most of my life in, in now building leaders, but the idea is you've gotten so good at deconstructing. I want you to take that same energy you put to being contrarian to being a leader that builds. Don't just deconstruct why things don't work, but construct ideas that work, right? Don't just complain that, yes, our government isn't doing enough about environmental policy, but what are you doing about changing our government in terms of doing more about environmental policy. You know, that's the shift. And that's, that's what leadership is, is owning the problem, seeing yourself as responsible for fixing the problem and doing it. Yeah, I see. And what a great answer. The idea that we're not all necessarily leaders, but we all have the potential to be leaders if we step up and try. It's, it's that effort. It's getting out of the passenger seat and taking the steering wheel and, and developing those skills that will come over time. And this actually ties into, into the next segment perfectly, which is I wanted you to share the mac and cheese story, the infamous mac and cheese story, which uh, we'll probably get a little bit of a shortened version here. But uh, out of that, that was probably a big moment in your life where, where you learned something that has transitioned into all the work you're doing right now. So take us through the mac and cheese story. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean... Here it was, I think I was 17 years old, um, I was in high school, uh, me and a bunch of friends decided to start a, a camp out of York Street Public School, which was the elementary school we went to here in Ottawa, and it's, it's, it, 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 York Street is located in low in ta- or lower town, which is the highest density of low-income housing. 
You know, so we grew up in this really low-income area, and we wanted to have an impact on our community. And I mean, I was against the idea initially of doing this camp because I thought you're crazy. Like, no one's going to give you their kids. Like, I'm a 17-year-old brown kid. Like, no one's going to drop off their kids to me. Uh, but we we did this. We started it. We had no idea what we were doing. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I said we made our first poster on Microsoft Paint. Like, we <laughs> knocked on a bunch of doors. And on that first day, like, 20 kids showed up to our camp. It was at the school. It was like, you know, we were just essentially a day camp. We were like, we're going to play sports, play dodgeball, coloring contests, so on and so forth. And on the first day... A bunch of kids bring out snacks and they all bring out their snacks and doing different things. And, and my counselor comes over to me and says, Fine, we should check everyone's snacks. I'm like, why do you got to check people's snacks? He's like, we check people's snacks in case they have peanuts. I'm like, so what? What if they have peanuts? I'm like, because peanuts make people die. And I was like, oh, shit. Okay, yeah, we got to check people's snacks because I don't want people to die. Like, again, I have no idea what I'm doing with this camp. I have 20 kids. I got to make sure they don't die. So we're checking, we're checking for snacks. And this one kid on my right side has like a few packs of fruit roll-ups. This other kid next to me has like a packs of Dunkaroos. And another kid on my left has like a bag of Doritos. And I'm like, mmm, these kids like, they're, you know, they've got some good snacks. I mean, this is hype. And then this one kid sitting right next to me has a box. He pulls out a box of dry mac and cheese. And he shakes it and and he looks at me in the eyes and says, I like dry mac and cheese. And 17-year-old me is about to burst out laughing. Like, I wish I could show you pictures of what I look like of 17. Man, I was, you know, I was from the hood. I, you know, I was playing basketball, baggy clothes. Like, I was, you know, I'm not what I look like now. I was, you know, a little, trying to act like a little cool kid, you know. And uh, 17-year-old me was just about burst out laughing. Like, oh, my God, this kid likes what? And I'm trying to hold it in. I'm trying to be kind of like. And I managed to hold myself. And I look at the kid and I say, sorry, what was that? And with the biggest smile on his face and his eyes wide open, he shakes the box again. And with proud, like pride, he says, I like dry mac and cheese. And that's it. I'm about to burst out laughing. I'm going to cry here. And my co-counselor comes running in from the side. One of the guys that we had volunteering with us just comes running in. And he looks at the kid and he says, oh, my God, is that dry mac and cheese? And the kid's eyes glow up and he goes, mm-hmm. And my co-counselor's like, well, can I try some? And the kid's like, mm-hmm. And he hands him over the box. The co-counselor grabs the box. He opens the box. He puts his hand in. And he starts eating it. <laughs> and I could just see it go down his throat. I'm standing here watching this like, mm, are these fools out of their mind? Like, what <laughs> is going on? What the heck is this? And he's eating it. And I'm like, ugh, this is disgusting. I'm bewildered watching this. And then the kid with the fruit roll-ups. The kid with the Dunkaroos and the kid with the bag of, bag of Doritos. I'll turn to this one kid and say, trade ya. And the kids start trading. And, and they pull out their little, the little bag of cheese that's in the mac and cheese. <laughs> and they spread the cheese on the dry noodles. And I'm watching this and I'm like, what on earth is ha- happening? What? I pull my co-counselor aside. I pull him aside. And I was like, hey, bro, um, what was that? What are you doing? He's like, hey man, like I, like I, I was just trying to. Help. I'm like, what are, what are you doing? You don't seriously like dry mac and cheese, do you? He said, no, that was one of the most disgusting things I've ever tried. And I was like, exactly. <laughs> you know, I felt validated because I was like, it looked disgusting. And then he said something interesting. He said, Fad, sometimes we have to make split second decisions that can change the course of someone's life. And I was like, yeah, the kid could have died. Death, life, we're changing course for sure. Like that's 
That's for sure changing course. Now, the kid went on to be one of the coolest kids at camp. He had so many friends. It was awesome. To this day, I don't remember his name because we called him Mac for Mac and Cheese. <laughs> and he was a fun kid. He was an awesome kid. And at the end of camp, I got an email from his mother. And the email subject line said, what have you done with my child? Question mark. I remember panicking and sweating. Oh, my God. Was he never supposed to eat that dry mac and cheese? I was like, this is the moment I get sued. This is why you don't give me your children. This is why camp was a horrible idea. This is why every, I should have never done this. I'm like panicking and I click on the email and like my heart's in my stomach and I read the next line. And she says, I believe you've abducted my child and given me another one. And now I'm confused because I'm like, I swear I didn't do that part. You know, I might have let your child eat mac and cheese, but I was like, what? What is it? I, I'm, I'm like panicking and I read the next paragraph. And she says, my child has been to special schools and special programs. He's been on special types of medication and he's seen psychologists and psychotherapists. And for a long time, we didn't know what was wrong with him. He's not been able to make friends on his own. She said, but today he's at the park by himself making friends. So thank you for giving my child a chance. That moment hit me because I realized just how important it was to eat that box of dry mac and cheese. <laughs> how important it was that my co-counselor jumped in. How important it was to make a split second decision that can change the course of someone's life. Had I laughed in that moment, the kids would have never traded. There would have been no trading. No one would have traded. No one would have gotten to know Mac. He probably would have still been called Mac, but he probably wouldn't have been the coolest kid at camp. Probably would have been one of the laughing stocks of the entire camp. But if my co-counselor didn't jump in and save the day, things would have turned out differently. You know, I think a lot of us have heard this, 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 this notion, this message that our actions can have impact on other people. But most of us refuse, and I mean refuse to take that responsibility on we say no way what i do no way what i do can really have an impact on other people like come on little old me it's just me i mean i definitely i was like me 17 year old brain me like no way have an impact on other people's life what we do is that we pass this this responsibility on of leadership and we say it doesn't belong to us someone else can have an impact our teachers our parents our mentors someone older we don't believe we can because if, if truly we were to accept that we can have an impact on someone else's life in such a, such a small insignificant way, like such a little action can have such a huge impact. If we were to truly accept that, it would be kind of scary because you'd have to start recognizing that everything you do and say can impact others. And you now got to take on that responsibility. You got to start thinking about what you say, how you act, what you do, how you show up every single day changes if you choose to actually believe that. So that's why most of us will say, well, yeah, I kind of believe it. Like, you know, it's nice for the movies, but we don't take it on because the moment we take it on, the responsibility changes. And, and for me, I, there was no way I couldn't take it on because I just saw it. I just lived it. And I think sometimes we have to have those moments, those inflection points in our life. For me, I realized at that moment that what I do in this world will have ripple effects for eternity.
what I do for a child, what I do for an adult, what I do for my community will shape my community, will shape my life. And I think a lot of times we do things, you know, and I did that camp and, 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 and was involved with it. And, and we actually over five, you know, we started in high school and we continued it for five years uh, while we were in university. We raised over $40,000, helped over 250 families in those five years. And, you know, while in one form it was created as a way for us to give to our community, to have an impact, that camp transformed me more than anything else. It turned me into a person who believed in compassionate leadership, a leadership form of leadership that I believe we need more of today. That's uh, that's our story of of Mac, you know. <laughs> wow, Bod, what an incredible story! And the reason I love it so much is because it speaks to how important our actions can be, but also how important our inactions can be. If you're if your um, supervisor there just stayed in that passenger seat and didn't take action, you know that could have negatively altered the course of that. You called him Mac, right? That child's <laughs> life. So just bringing attention to the importance of our daily actions and the impact they can have on the people around us. Uh, what's incredible too is the impact that had on yourself. Now all of the all of the work that you're doing and you digging deeper into leadership. We're going to talk about a lot of the concepts here. Um, but I encourage everyone listening to this also watch the video format of this story because um, it's, it's an incredible story and you get a different sense of energy out of it. But Fahd, incredible, incredible job sharing that story. So let's get a little bit into leadership. What values are most important to you as a leader? What values are most important to me or what values do I think are most important to lead and, and, and leaders? Exactly. That question there. I believe there's one essential value that oftentimes goes overlooked and it's the one that I'll stress the most. A leader must believe in the good of people. Leader must inherently believe that every person they meet is good. Every person they meet is a soul, a person who is part of a community and who wants to uplift the world. I think we live in a society that doesn't believe that. I know it sounds quite simple, the believing the good of people. A lot of people will hear this and be like, yeah, yeah, okay. But I want to tell you how radical that idea is and how if we shift our view on that one idea how we can actually, I think, shift the world. The radical idea that deep down, everyone is actually a decent person will probably shake and revolutionize the world's institutions from governments to religions to everything in between. Our society has built on the notion that just below the surface, humans are chaotic. It's this Thomas Hobbes Leviathan idea it's the idea that we're born sinful and that we spend our lives sinning. It's this idea that actually when chaos hits, we're all going to, um, uh, you know, revert to our natural self, which are our selfish self, right? It's this Machiavellian idea. There's a professor out of Netherlands, uh, a postum, who asks this wonderful question. 
and he asks it to all his students. He, he says, if an airplane is coming to crash, uh, crash lands and splits into three parts, but the, they're survivors, he says, what happens? Do we live in a planet A or planet B? On planet A, everyone's calm and they just help out the elderly. They open up the emergency. They help out the kids, make sure order, orderly fashion. Everyone gets out of the plane. Everything's good. He's like, or do we live on planet B? Everyone panics. It's chaos. It's every person for themselves. Like people are getting trampled all over. He says, when I ask that question, 97% of people say we live on planet B. He says, however, in every plane crash we've ever seen, we live on planet A. When, when there was an att- the attack on Twin Towers, firefighters and cameras showed recordings of people holding the doors open for each other, walking single file the line down the stairs and saying, oh, you after me, you go first. In the midst of chaos, people actually showed up and were good. There's a lot of evidence. You know, if we watch the movie, The Titanic, we would think that when the, when the Titanic came, like everyone was losing their mind aside from the orchestra that was like playing their songs, right? <laughs> but the reality and the true accounts of the Titanic were that everyone was actually really calm. They got the safety boats. They put the mothers and the children and the elderly out on the boats. We believe in this idea that uh, uh, one of the professors, I forget what his name, they, they, they considers, calls it veneer theory, that just below the surface of society, everyone is trying to optimize for themselves, they're selfish, and they're going to t- take advantage. And a lot of us live life distrusting. We distrust a lot of things. It's a lot of part of our postmodernist view Modernist views believe that there was objective truth. Postmodernist views that everything is subjective. So our subjective views this in this in this era have created a true distrust. You don't believe what you read on, online. You don't believe what government officials tell you. There is no trust. Everything is fake news. Everything has something else. If you ever tried to look at nutrition online, you find every article about how some nutrition is a lie, and you know everything is contrarian. Everything is postmodernist. So we have a society with deep distrust that believes at any moment people are going to try and take advantage of you and that believes we live on planet B where if chaos hits, everyone is every person for themselves. Yet when I make a statement like we need to believe in the good of people, people say, well, that, yeah, that's simple. No, no, no. You truly need to believe the goodness of people, that people deep down are actually good. And you know what? It's not just a belief. Majority of science today backs up the biological evidence that as humans, we are good, that we want to build community, that we want to help each other, that we are empathetic, that we do believe that other people should be good, that we expect goodness of each other, and that most evidence points to that being true. Yet the story we tell ourselves is that one of Lord of the Flies, where if we're trapped on an island, we're all going to kill each other. That's a fictional book. Yet we quote it as if it's real. (laughs) The number one value, Sahel, for leadership is you have to believe that the man or the woman or the person sitting next to you is fundamentally good and wants to see humanity grow. And if you start there, then you'll be able to lead because you'll be able to actually give people a view, a vision to, to work with. And you'll give them trust because trust is the foundation 
in every leadership, in every relationship. And yet, most people say, well, my trust needs to be earned. And I'll tell you what good leaders say. They say, I give trust freely. Because that is how I can get people to believe in an idea. Yeah, that's really interesting, especially you were talking about the distrust that's been created, you know, in the last couple of years. And I mean, nowadays with with the mainstream media pushing, you know, a lot of it seems like we're, we're always getting negative news. We're always getting the bad that happens. And over time, that's going to impact us the way we believe, the way we make our decisions. So just coming from a point of believing in the good of people, not just to believe it, but as you said, the research supports it. I mean, we are good and that's a great value to have, you know, knowing that trust is the foundation of, of building great leadership and great teams. And now I know you've been in, in a lot of leadership work, which has you working in a lot of different team environments where you need to be able to trust people and believe in the good. So how do you build a great team culture? What sorts of things are you looking out for to make that happen? You know, um, one of the one of the best studies that I, I, I always reference is the Aristotle study that was done by Google. Um, in 2012, Google wanted to try and, and identify its culture and find out what creates high-performing teams. And they dug through years and years of research looking at all these different teams, all the different ways, over 100, 180 teams that they studied. And they came in with the hypothesis that depend, it depended on the group of people, that the who was there, uh, the, the talent around the table, the composition of the team that truly affected what made a high-performing team. But as they dug through the research, as they went through study after study, as they got all the quantitative and qualitative re, uh, um, data, no matter which way they cut the data, they couldn't prove their hypothesis because they realized that high team performance had nothing to do with the composition of a team, but had everything to do with the norms and values of a team. And one of the most clearly pronounced values that showed up in the study that was predominant over all the other values was this concept of psychological safety, which is the safety to, to speak one's mind, to share one's ideas, to take risks, to engage in discussion and debate with one's team without the fear of repercussion, without the fear of being reprimanded, without the fear of, I might say something wrong. We've all been in a situation where we feel like we're walking on eggshells or I can't say this or should I say this or people who play office politics, oh, I got to say this or the people who play the game of power, the Machiavellian game of power. All of those concepts are just completely what destroy teams. The fundamental piece of a team is that psychological safety, which is very closely related to that vulnerable based trust I'm talking about and very closely related to this concept of belonging. You know, one of Maslow's hierarchy of needs for humans is, a, is, a, is, is belonging. I think it's once it's the third stage in our Maslow psychology uh, hierarchy of needs. And it's this concept that we as humans all need to belong to a group, belong to a people. It's, it's why if you're you know, down south in, in vacation, you see another Canadian, you're like, oh my God, a Canadian! Even though they're just as much a stranger as anyone else. They literally are a stranger. 
but yet you feel connected to them. Or you're wearing a Raptors jersey, you, so, you see someone else wear a Raptors jersey and you just want to dab them. Yeah, yeah, bro, Raptors. You feel connected immediately because you belong to the same ideas. Psychological safety is a base that creates trust and creates belonging. And that is what creates high-performing teams. Not the composition of a team, but the interaction between team members. And that, that's why it's so difficult. Because you cannot buy good team performance and high team performance. You can't buy it. You, can't buy, you can buy the best talent in the world. You cannot buy high team performance. You have to do the work and you have to create those interactions and dig deep into the emotional energy that it requires. Yet teamwork is perhaps the single greatest competitive advantage in business and in the world. And we see it in sport. It's easy to point out in sports because we see it's very apparent, but yet we don't discuss it as much in the real, in the, in, I don't know, but in the work world and in industry and in government and how much that actually makes a difference. Very interesting. Yeah. The idea that it has nothing to do with composition, but everything to do with the values you create and the actual chemistry in between the team members that uh, is going to build over time. And I'm sure we can all relate to being in, in team environments or even classrooms or whatever it may be where we don't feel comfortable speaking out. And because that environment has created that sense of discomfort, there's so much opportunity missed. A, a lack of contribution that you know could have been there, which could have led to great ideas and great team building. So creating that sense of safety and belonging must be super important. And so what can we do to create that sense of belonging and, and that feeling of welcomeness in team settings? You know, it's it actually, it begins quite simply. Um, and it is about creating uh, personal trust more than just professional trust. Uh, a lot of people say, well, no, no, I got prof professional trust. I trust the person who's going to get their work done. I, you know, I trust that they're going to, they're dependable. But I'm talking about personal trust. So one is you got to get to know the person. Like it's just develop the relationship. That is one of them. You got to develop the relationship beyond just a work relationship. You got to get to know them. You got to have to get, you have to get vulnerable. You know, Brene Brown, people a lot of celebrate her work. And, and I think her work is great because she talks about the importance of vulnerability in leaders. Why is vulnerability important? Because it creates psychological safety. When you are vulnerable, when you are honest, when you are open, when you create that, that's number one. Number two is we need to reward effort, not results. When we reward results, we teach people that only do the things you're already good at because you're going to get a result. Every time you reward only results, you only you tell you create a fixed mindset. What you want is a growth mindset. You need to reward effort because if someone tries, fails, but you reward that, they're told, oh, if I try and, and I can try things outside of the bounds, then I can actually, you know, I'll get rewarded for it. We want to encourage experimentation, but that encouragement of experimentation comes at how we reward experimentation. That's part of psychological safety. The, the feeling that you're not going to be punished for making a mistake that, you know, is in the form of experimentation and growth. And, you know, the other part is, is that I think we need to, we, we need to create spaces that, that are safe so that talks about diversity, that talks about inclusion, that talks about all of these new topics, that not new topics, but topics that have become more apparent to a lot of people. But people need to feel understood. People want to feel seen. So we need to hear them out. 
right? If someone has an idea and you don't agree with it, you don't shut it down, you hear them out. You know, we say that there's no such thing as a dumb idea, but then we provide judgment when people provide dumb ideas, right? Oh, that is a stupid idea. Let me tell you why it's stupid. Well, you've just ruined parts of psychological safety, right? Vulnerable-based trust is the trust that you have that this person has your back, that this person is in to, to, to they're going to go to bat for you. They're going to fight for you, that they're going to have, you know, and, and they're going to do whatever they can to ensure the success of your idea. And that is what we're trying to accomplish here with psychological safety. Yeah, that's a great answer. Let's say someone breaks that psychological safety. Let's say there's a disagreement in the team environment and instead of handling it in a calm way to hear the other person out, that person is maybe, you know, getting a little bit frustrated or or really disagreeing with that person and attacking them. I'm wondering, because I know you've been in a lot of different team settings where you've had to take that leadership role. How do you personally handle disagreements within a team setting to ensure things move together smoothly? And instead of dividing the team, you know, that disagreement maybe turns into a further connection and and for the team to grow. You know, I think when when we're having disagreements in teams um, is a, a wonderful and amazing thing. I think it is actually the art form that we should act, we should encourage. When you put highly intelligent people and highly motivate, motivated people in a room to solve a complex problem, you are about to get different perspectives and ideas. If all you got were the same ideas and you don't have highly intelligent functional people, you want different perspectives. You want different ideas. So actually, we want to encourage productive conflict. We want to encourage people to debate perspective, to debate ideas, and to engage. Conflict is the journey to truth. When you put pre- ideas under pressure, you get these diamonds. When you put ideas and people under pressure and you push to try and see where there's room for it to grow, then we build on ideas. There's a difference between productive conflict and mean-spirited conflict. If it is judgmental, if it's mean, if it's attacking, then that needs to stop. That's not appropriate ever. But a lot of times what happens is that people avoid productive conflict as a whole. Most people have conflict avoidance patterns. Most people avoid conflict and they avoid tension. I don't want to deal with that. Oh, I'm too nervous. I'm not going to mention it to that person. And so what ends up happening is they have office politics. What ends up happening is that they have gossip that happens afterwards and they don't actually deal with the crux of it. Leader's job is to create a space where tension is easily dealt with. Tension is a good thing. We must engage in tension, engage in conflict and have that. So when we're having a conflict with a team member, this is good. I appreciate that. Tell me your idea. Tell me what you think. How do we get better? If someone is giving me critical feedback, that is important. You know, I feel far too much in Canada and Canadian culture, we pull back our punches. We don't give critical feedback. We believe in the, the, the feedback sandwich. Be nice and give a little feedback, then be nice. But you're a soccer player. So how, do you want your coach to, when you're messing up, you want your coach to be like, okay, this was good. This is where you need to improve. And this was good. Or do you want, to be, want him to be like, hey, you really got to fix this if you want to win. Because true A players want feedback. A players want coaches that are going to call them out. A players want teammates that are going to hold them accountable. And that's what you're looking for. 
You're looking for a high-performing team who actually wants extreme conflict, want feedback, because they know the conflict isn't personal. And do you know why, Suhail, they know the conflict isn't personal? Because they have psychological safety. Conflict doesn't work if you don't have psychological safety. Conflict doesn't work if you don't believe in the good of people. Because you think people innately are trying to hurt you. So you don't give them the benefit of the doubt. And I was just about to say, it goes back to that psychological safety and and the good of people. You know, that's what I find fascinating about leadership. It's not like there's a concept here, there's a concept there, but they're all integrated within each other. And if you can build off of each other, then, you know, you're, you're going to create that environment where uh, people are feeling safe to speak and people are feeling safe to share different ideas and different perspectives because that's the only way we're ever going to create something new and innovate something new. And uh, I like what you said about creating an environment where tension is easily dealt with, knowing that, you know, tension is going to come up. And when it comes up, we're going to deal with it and we're going to grow as a team. I'm wondering, what do you do, Fad, to motivate a team? Let's say it's let's say it's a Monday morning. You're stepping into a room. You know, you've got your team, no energy, no motivation at all. What would you do to motivate that team and get them going strong for the week? You know, uh, Bill Campbell is a, uh, a Silicon Valley coach. He's uh, someone that passed away. But uh, his book was written for him by by Eric Schmidt from from Google because he he coached Eric. Bill always started those meetings. He said, you start those meetings with the what's called a trip report. The trip report is just to ask people what they did for fun, what trips they've been on. I think when you just shift the conversation to what are you doing for fun, people automatically's moods just shift. Yeah, and you get to know them a little bit. So I would say you start off that conversation with what did you do for fun? And so when people start talking about what they did for fun, they laugh, they smile, they're already in good in a good mood, and then you take it from there. I think high-performing people want a challenge. So if people are, are unmotivated, perhaps they don't have a challenge. Perhaps their job is just too wah-wah. It just doesn't feel good. It doesn't, not exciting. It's not pushing them. So we better have a challenge that, that we want to overcome. And, 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 you know, I think you start with the, the trip report. You, you lay out the challenge that you have for the week ahead, for the months ahead. You paint a very clear vision. But then you also create space for people to debate that. And most importantly, you create autonomy. You create space for people to be able to try and solve the complex problem in their own way, through their own work, without feeling like they've got to check in or they've got to, you know, um, uh, get permission for everything they do. You know, one of the interesting things, you know, Google cites this, why they were able to take so much talent in 1998 and like early 2000s from so many other big companies was because employees moving to Google would say, you know, we could publish code so much faster. Within our own teams, we're able to just go, move on to the next thing, move on to the next thing. We're able to produce. If you empower teams to create and produce and publish without needing 20 levels of approvals, you're creating a lot more feeling of autonomy and a lot more independence and a lot more motivation. We are motivated by creation and results. We want to be able to kick the ball, to shoot, to play in the game. We don't want to just practice all the time until we get approvals. We want to actually be in the ring. So give people more chances to be in the ring. Let them press publish more often. Let them try products out more often. And that will make a big difference in your employee uh, and your team you know, engagement. And you know what the last thing is? A lot of the research recently, which is super interesting coming out of Gallup, will show that 
employee engagement and team engagement is directly linked to whether the employees and teams feel like they're being developed and coached. And so if you are not spending time coaching your team, helping them grow, teaching them, and, 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 and developing that piece, then you're not going to get that engagement on Monday morning. That makes sense. You know, having, having that autonomy is, is very important because you, you feel like you're in control and that almost motivates yourself knowing that whatever task is ahead, you know, it's, it's you who has to step up and do it. But then also the coaching aspect, knowing that you have a leader, knowing that there is some structure and there is some guidance and you guys are, you know, on, on a path to achieving something. And that trip report is super cool, you know, starting it off with a little bit of fun, a little bit of getting into that personal life. And it, it gets back into it gets back into developing that personal trust that you talked about earlier, you know, not just keeping everything super professional and superficial, but maybe getting to know that person a little bit more to create a greater sense of connection. So uh, last couple of things, just to, just to finish off with some fun here, Fod, who is your favorite leader? Wow, that's a good one. Um... Feel free to name a couple. Yeah, yeah. Who's my favorite leader? You know, one of my favorite leaders is not is not a known hero. He's not someone most people know. Um, is a gentleman of the name Tom Patrick. He was uh, the camp director at one of the first camps I ever worked at, the camp I ever attended, Camp Smitty with the Boys and Girls Clubs of Ottawa. Tom was this older ginger man, beard, ginger beard, and on the first day of every camp session, there was like four camp sessions every every summer. 100 kids, 120 kids per camp session. Um, on the first day, we take the kids to all the different like locations, the nurse's cabin, the swimming, to do all the tests and all that. And one of the stops that we do was with with, with Tom. And uh, he played this game called Dynamite. It's this rock game and just to kind of challenge the kids. Um, and Tom would know every single name of every single camper and who their siblings were. 120 kids. On the first day, he could name every camper. Every camper. I was still learning the eight or ten he gave me. And it wasn't that Tom had a super freakish memory. But he took the time. Took the time. These are kids. They're not clients, customers, voters, whatever. You know, they're not they're stakeholders. They're kids. Got to know every single one of them. That was the beauty of Tom. Here's the thing with Tom is we would always laugh as he would be running a camp program and you could see Tom in the bushes. And the joke was that Tom always stood on the side. He would lead from behind. He would empower his people to run the programs and run the camp games and do everything. And he was there to support. And you only heard from Tom when he was there to coach you. He never gave you a disciplining conversation. He gave you a coaching conversation. That is a leader I look up to. Getting to know people, getting to know the kids, getting to know the people who don't aren't part of the value statement, you know, like the they're not paying yeah. you because it shows that you care. I think that's a leader. You know, other leaders I aspire to and I look to is I, I, I've always loved Barack Obama. I've read a lot of his work. I've, I've read uh, his biography. He's got a new book that just came out, actually, uh, well, coming out, I think, November 17th or something. And um, I love Barack you know, his, his work in the U.S. as president, is, there's, question, there's a lot of question marks on it. There's a lot of things that he could have done better. There's a lot of things we can criticize him for without a doubt. But I like his values. I like what he stands up for. I like the 
the the empathy he shows. I like his wisdom. I like his thinking, and uh, you know, I think that's that's you know a big part of it. That's amazing. Leaders should win at all costs. Agree or disagree? One hundred percent disagree. It depends how you define winning, because a leader wins not by getting the result, because sometimes the process is more important than the result. A leader knows that the means don't justify the ends, that in fact the means themselves are the ends. And so unless your means are good, now it's easier said than done. I've been in situations where I've chosen the ends over the means. I'm not perfect either. But the fact that I can go back and recognize some of that and try and change that as part of my reflection, my self-reflection, my self-awareness, my journey as a leader. But a leader understands that the ends aren't justified. I love that distinction. Three opportunities people can look out for in their day right now to implement leadership. I think one of the easiest ways is to just look back and think about what you wish you had when you were younger. If you just look back and say, I wish I had this when I was in high school. I wish I had this when I was a kid. I wish I had this when I was in university. You can start solving a problem that exists and start adding value that easily. Second thing is start developing relationships. So someone at school, in your team, at work, you feel doesn't feel like they belong. As a leader, your goal is just to make people feel like they belong. Because that's psychological safety. That will create a better team. So if there's someone around you that you think doesn't feel like they belong, then work on that. And if you meet someone new, anytime you meet someone new, your goal is to make them feel like they belong. And third thing is start changing the narrative. Whenever people talk about oh, the distrusted humanity, or I've lost faith in humanity, or oh, people aren't good. Show the research. People are good. Have faith in humanity. Believe in the good of people and fight for the good of people because if we change the story, we change the design. Current society is designed under the notion that people will take advantage of any moment. But perhaps that design has a feedback loop and has created that. If we start designing for the fact that people are actually good, we might actually see greater results. And I know some people listening to this are like, oh, well, you've never been screwed over. That's why you think that. No, I've been screwed over. Sure. But I want you to think about how many times you've been screwed over to how many times people have helped you. The ratio favors the people that have helped you. But yet you remember the ones that have screwed you over because you've been fascinated and fixated on the negative. That's very true. And Fahd, finally, share with us your unique gift. <laughs> That's a great question. I've been thinking about it, you know, as you kind of prompted me earlier. I think my number one unique gift is that as a young child, I was told that there are no gifts. That all talent is developed. All talent, all skill is not genetic. The only things that are genetic are your height, your eye color, your teeth. Your brain is a mush of neurons and synapses and connections that is nurtured and formed. Every single skill that someone has, has been developed and learned. And I think at an early age, I accepted that and I made learning my number one goal. And so if there's something you think you can't do, just recognize it is just a skill that you develop. And this isn't just me saying this, the science behind it is real. It's a great book by Daniel Coy called The Talent Code. Check it out. It goes through the signs of how skill is developed. It is purely nurtured over and over again by developing it. And I think that's my gift is that the belief that as anything out there, I can learn, I can create. And by that attitude, it's allowed me 
to develop and create such a, you know, at such a rate. Having that belief is so powerful. Fahd, thank you so much for sharing such great value with us today and inspiring uh, listeners today to take action and to look out for ways to become leaders because everyone has the potential to become a leader. You just need to step out of that passenger seat and take some action and take the steering wheel. Let us know where we can connect with you. Thank you, Zahed. Uh, you can find me on, on Twitter. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on LinkedIn. My name, Fahad Al-Hatab. You also can find my, my website, Fahad Speaks, is for my youth. Unicorn Labs is my company that we do work with um, you know, organizations, unicornlabs.ca. Um, so check out our websites. Check out our social media. And uh, hit me up if you have any questions. Amazing. Make sure to check out Fahad. Thank you again so much for coming on. And we'll be in touch. Thank you, Sahid. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the 8 Billion Gifts podcast. Check out the links in the description if you are looking to get connected with this week's guest. This is a great platform to expand your network, connect with people who come on, and to learn something new at the same time. Stay tuned for next week's episode featuring a new story and mindset. In the meantime, keep learning, keep growing, and have an amazing day.